0: This is Lexis, the podcast all about linguistics.
1: Hi, I'm Matthew Butler.
0: I'm Jackie Glancy.
1: I'm Dan Clayton.
2: And I'm Lisa Casey.
1: So on this episode of Lexis, we're really pleased to welcome Dr. Sandra Janssen, who's a senior lecturer at University of Paderborn, Germany. Um, Sandra is a sociolinguist interested in accent, dialect, language variation and uh, second language acquisition. So thank you very much for joining us, Sandra.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: So Sandra, as a linguist, what is your perspective on how
3: language stories are covered in the print and online media? And maybe you could give us some examples which spring to mind of stories that have been covered well and maybe less well. Yeah, so I was thinking about this a bit more today and being able to compare now UK media and German media, I realized that there are many more stories about language in the UK media than in in the German media. And I think there are some reasons for that. So, on the one hand, you have a public figure like David Crystal who's publicized language for a long time and lots of people go and see him and you now have the magazine Babel. So that's also sparking interest by lay people, I think. You also have the social class differences that's much, much stronger in the UK than they are in Germany. And so language has always been part of this social class difference. This is only starting to develop in, in German. So this is something that's new for us. Uh, And one part is also that REF requirements are there for public engagement and impact. So REF requirements for lecturers at universities to uh, like an external motivation to engage with the public. And I think that has also motivated to uh, linguists to, to speak up publicly. So I think there are um, basically two kinds of language stories in my opinion. Those that are released Um, by university press offices based on studies and those that pick up the stories that are happening in the public eye. For example, the story about Alex Scott dropping her G's, um, being criticized by a lot, Digby Jones uh, recently, or Fiona Hill, who talked about her accent being a problem to to make it in the UK and so she moved to the US. Or uh, even Steph McGovern, who has been criticized repeatedly for her Northern accent. Mm. And the one why Dan contacted me was about predicting the future of English recently, uh, which is based on modeling, data modeling. The second news story uh, based on on a report was the HSBC report from 2016 called Sound of 2066. It's a report by two linguists um, commissioned by the HSBC in the context of voice recognition technique they were introducing at the time.
0: So... Sandra, how important do you think it is for linguists to engage with the media and, and offer their kind of expert perspectives on stories about language in the news?
3: Um, I think it's really important. From a German perspective, I think we, we should engage, engage much more, which we don't. But especially in the UK, where we have this very strong class division Mm-hmm. Uh, which still has an influence on people's lives and uh, developments and uh, mm-hmm. you know career stages and so on and so forth uh, it is really important that we share our knowledge about language and about accent and dialect bias for example which lead to prejudices and so that people can have the tools to start questioning these biases. It's not easy because Mm. we grow up with them and then just starting to question them is is probably something if we do that continuously, I hope that we we spark some interest at least by some people in this. And if we get um, even a small group to think about language attitudes a bit more, I think that's already a success.
2: Do you think yeah. that there's a bit of a bias then in UK news reporting about language towards stories that are linked to class as opposed to stories linked to things like language change or, you know, new new words or things like that?
3: Well, I think they sell well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, it's... It's something that most people, or everybody in the UK, can associate with. Everybody has some kind of idea when, when we talk about Northern accents. Everybody has an idea about when we talk about Southwestern accents. It's it's much more this way here in the UK than it is in Germany, for example. So because language is, is such an identity marker in the uk in terms of social class you get these stories over and over again and i mean i i notice them so much because of not having them here mm. uh, and because i'm fascinated by uh, the social class system in britain as such <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes, we're, yes, we're an odd
3: bunch, aren't we? <laughs> so
1: what would you say are the potential pitfalls for linguists in engaging with the media? In your English Today article, you say that with topics like linguistics or the humanities more broadly, some newspapers, particularly those with a broadly right-wing agenda such as the Sun, the Daily Mail or the Daily Telegraph, seem to have a tendency to twist academics' views in order to push their own agenda which can, as a consequence, potentially harm and marginalise minority groups such as immigrants. There's quite a lot to think about and unpack in there, isn't there?
3: Yeah. One example is uh, Meghan Markle. A few weeks ago, I I remember other linguists saying, oh, I was called by, I don't know, the Sun or the Daily Mail or whatever. um, And they wanted a story on Meghan Markle. And some linguists engaged with it, but they never showed up in the article because Mm. they probably didn't say what the newspaper wanted to hear. But for me, a very dramatic example is this HSBC report from 2016. That was written or at least released shortly after the referendum. Yeah. And at that time, the basically every headline was that immigrants are doing something to the country to harm the country. And we were, I'm saying we because I was an immigrant at the time, we were very vulnerable at the time. So, reading um, headlines like Immigrants Are Killing Queen's English or something like that yeah. was really, really heartbreaking and also making me even vul- more vulnerable than I was already. Mm. Um, so it was a short report where two linguists were talking about the things that might change till twenty uh, sixty six. So several uh, language changes that were they were hinting at, and they were talking about th fronting. And it's that's not a problem at all. Th fronting is a change that is happening, and we have different um, studies on th fronting. That's not um, the issue. But what happened was that they had this very small sentence in that in there that said that it would come as a relief for foreign learners of English who struggle with the th sound for a linguist it's not an issue at all because we know that th is a not easy sound to produce and we know that learners of English often replace that sound but out of this whole report most newspapers took this very short sentence and turned it against immigrants yeah Uh, and that that was a huge issue in my view
1: and I mean, when you when you look at the report itself, immigration doesn't really feature that heavily in what the linguists themselves were saying, does it? It's very, it's very much focused on things like technology. They talk they talk a bit about kind of, you know, the influence of America as well, don't they, on English? So it is does seem to be cherry-picking the points that seem to fit with a broader agenda. And as you say, linking it to around the time around the sort of Brexit vote does does add a different dimension to it, doesn't it?
3: yeah exactly so it was what i said about marginalizing an already marginalized group at the time mm. so that that was really an unfortunate thing that happened and in in the article i pledge for rethinking how we convey these messages so yeah. it's like i said it's not for a linguist it's not a problematic statement but to put foreign learners or immigrants in this report is a bit problematic at the time.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I see what you mean, yeah.
2: And are there any instances that you can think of, of the left-wing press doing something similar, kind of taking findings from linguistic studies and sort of manipulating them for an agenda?
3: Um, I think Dan had also something from The Guardian related to this report, but I'm
1: yeah, mm-hmm. I, they took the sort of Americanization of English angle, didn't they? Mm, I think it was it was an interesting one because it did seem it did seem to be fairly sort of nationalistic, which you might not expect from a left-leaning paper. But at the same time, you know, there is the sense from people across the political spectrum that English is getting worse and it's the fault of the Americans, and it's you know maybe, maybe there's a kind of left-wing anti-American sort of feeling about you know a, a massive capitalist superpower that's in, you know imposing its language on the world so mm. maybe that's part of it i don't know
2: so language in the news obviously comes up a lot what kind of advice would you give either to a level students or teachers or undergraduates about how they might approach articles about language in the media and what kinds of critical questions they should be asking
3: yeah so one very central point i would say is to consider the agenda of the news outlet as we heard as well as right-wing media we can have issues with left-wing media but in general the major problems are with uh, right-wing media outlets, I I would say. Also, it would be good to Try and look at the original sources, if possible, with the HSBC report that was made available publicly. So to see what what was actually said. Also to look at blog posts by linguists who might cover topics that are in the news at the moment. Mm -hmm. So Jane Setter actually wrote a short blog post about this HSBC report and about TH fronting shortly after that was commissioned, but we have other linguists who are blogging nowadays. And we have several podcasts nowadays as well. Um, Yay! <laughs> um, and also, so if they are students or, or teachers of English language linguistics, just go back to the knowledge that you gained in class mm-hmm. and, and compare it to what you read and, and see how it mismatches or matches um what you know but also question your biases again uh, because they they are always there and they are still strong
1: (laughs) just going back to the sort of thing about the the right-wing press as you sort of picked up in the language today piece is it particularly that those papers with that kind of agenda are more likely to spin stories about language in particular directions because they sort of link to ideas around sort of decline and society changing for the worse, or about sort of class division in a particular way. What is it particularly that you think about? It is about that type of media.
3: Um, I think those newspapers use stories like that to divide society to to gain some kind of ground in in a particular way. Murdoch. Does all of this to gain power in the country, not because of, you know, language use as such, but to be in the country. So this is what I would say is. Uh, the main agenda for most of the right-wing news outlets. We had a really
2: nice discussion with Philip Sargent who talked about Mm. something similar, about the mobilisation, particularly of metaphor and narrative, to feed sort of particularly right-wing machines, although you did talk, I think, about some left-wing ones as well, and them about feeding sort of wider social grand narratives that are about power Mm. and division and and kind of social groups as well.
1: And I suppose there's also the sort of culture wars kind of side of things isn't there where Mm. we seem to have sort of imported that from the us and it's taken on a life of its own here isn't it where you can see that stories about language are often kind of linked to you know what's seen as like a polarized society around being woke or anti-woke and being sensitive to people's language concerns or just being sort of traditionalist about them so i suppose there's that that agenda as well at work isn't there is that something you see at, at all in the german media or is that is that less pronounced
3: we don't have so much right-wing newspaper outlets so that's definitely weaker but it's there and i think it has its limits but with youtube and telegram and Mm. and you know those news outlets we have similar problems about other issues nowadays yeah like uh, vaccination and so on and so forth Mm -hmm. yeah
1: I'm just interested in what's your take on how receptive people in general are to actual findings rather than just assumptions or myths on language use and related things.
3: I think it's hard to break through the myths because if you get your biases confirmed, that's easier than to get them questioned. So I think we can only do our best by repeating what we're doing all the time and maybe by that get people to think about this uh, more i think uh, an individual event where we talk about this will not make much uh, change but if we do this continuously and my british colleagues do this continuously now i hope that we get at least some people rethinking what uh, their ideas of language
1: that's really helpful. I That's think it, it? T- ties in really nicely with what we're the other things we're going to talk about in the episode. So, thank you very much for that.
3: Great. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Okay, so we're just going to talk about a story that arose just over two weeks ago from when we're talking now. This was from a post by Digby Jones, and it was in response to listening to the BBC Olympics coverage. And Lord Digby Jones on his Twitter thread says, enough, I can't stand it anymore. Alex Scott spoils a good presentational job on the BBC Olympics with her very noticeable inability to pronounce her G's at the end of a word. Competitors are not, in capital letters, taking part, Alex, in the fencing, rowing, boxing, kayaking, weightlifting and swimming. And he spells all of those words without a G. In his second tweet, he goes on to say, She is hot on the heels of Beth Rigby at Sky, the Home Secretary, for God's sake. Can't somebody give these people elocution lessons? I fear that it may be aped by youngsters along the lines of the use of the moronic interrogative, originally caused by neighbours, on behalf of the English language. Help. Hmm. There's a lot in there, isn't there? <laughs> there is. There is. Um, a lo- yeah and there was a big response as well wasn't there across yeah. across twitter and and in the press yeah and responses from linguists it's a really really yeah. perfect
2: example of what sandra was just talking about in terms of a non academic research based event that occurred sort of in the public eye and then fostered yeah. a whole bunch of public facing mm-hmm. discussion about a language feature and in this case from log digby jones just to do a really quick kind of close reading of mm. some of the features of the actual tweets themselves he starts off with this kind of imperative exclamative enough Uh, and of course the implicator there is that is that he's sort of shouting at alex scott to stop talking Mm. because he's had enough of the way that she is speaking and then follows that up with the with this really exclamative declarative i can't stand it anymore and the it Uh, The deictic reference there that he's talking about is Alex Scott's, to quote him, inability to pronounce her G's at the ends of words. And this, of course, is a a massive issue for all sorts of different reasons. And Dan, I think you actually piled in as part of the kind of public debate to argue against it being called G-dropping.
1: Yeah, I I think it was one of those kind of things where linguists were sort of debating this as well. And there was this sort of sense that, the the whole idea of calling it g-dropping is a real problem because Mm. it's not g-dropping and it's it comes back to this sort of essential idea that people often mistake with language is that this is about sounds this is about speaking it's not about how we spell words but of course we've got a spelling system that is is a rough approximation of how some words sound but it's also got loads of other things tied up with it like you know the history of words their morphology and things like that and their kind of origins in other languages so our spelling system mm-hmm. is not really the same as how we pronounce things. So yes, there is a G letter on the end of swimming and fencing mm. and rowing and boxing, but th- there is no G sound for most people. I mean, there are some accents where there is a pronounced G sound, like the Brummie accent, for example, yeah. swimming, and mm-hmm. you know where you pronounce that in the same way as you pronounce, you know, s- s- like finger, singer, mm-hmm. with that kind of G mm-hmm. sound. But for most people in the UK. Um, you don't pronounce a G anyway but I think it's that essential difference between spelling and speaking and I think I think it's one of those things where you know lots of linguists will call it G dropping because they need to engage in that debate with the public and there is a you know that that term is a is perhaps a helpful one to kind of talk about because they can then get to the issue around how that G dropping thing Mm. is not it's, it's a social kind of yeah, but it, it's by. also
0: misleading, isn't it? I mean, I think you, you yeah. know you've got G dropping in, you've got swallowing your T's, and, and yeah. those kinds of descriptions suggest that there's something that's been left out yeah. that should yeah. be there. No, no exactly. And he
2: does that, he does that really clearly here, where he refers yeah. to it as an inability to pronounce. Uh, yeah. it's a yeah. deficit approach to a phonological yeah. feature, yeah. um, which is underpinned by you know a misunderstanding about the way that phonology works, but is then yeah twisted into a comment about her professionalism a comment about her capacity as a presenter a Mm. comment about her capacity to anger him as a spectator and there's all sorts of things that i think are sort of layering in there that really comes out in that second tweet where he references another kind of female in the in the public eye beth rigby and then kind of asks this this rhetorical question, can't someone give these people elocution lessons? Uh, And that kind of phrase, these people, really sort of alienates um, Mm. the the women that he's talking about. But I think by implication, anybody who doesn't live up to this this perceived or imaginary standard of speaking that that he appears to be referring to, but of course isn't actually stated in any sense. Mm. We assume he means like himself
3: yeah uh, and that's maybe
2: yeah. or maybe like other other speakers of some other
0: dialect that he doesn't actually mention hmm. and i think that's that's the interesting thing he appears to compare them to probably his kind of notion of of rp but when you listen to him talk and i've listened to a few in, interviews you know there are kind of regional markers in his own accent but it seems to be that you know he's choosing which ones he's going to draw attention to yeah, and, yeah. and it's when he says it's that pre-modification in the first tweet when he says with her very noticeable inability mm-hmm. it's kind mm-hmm. of it there's a suggestion that that these features are kind of irksome and mm-hmm. kind of unpalatable and that's what's yeah. driven him you know to, the, to yeah. this kind of level of, of anger.
2: And he doubles down on that idea in the second part of that second tweet where he says, I fear it may be aped by youngsters <laughs> along the lines of the use of the moronic interrogative originally caused by neighbours. And I uh-huh. think he might be referring there to, to kind of a terminal rising inflection or yeah. commonly yeah, known as talk.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah.
2: Um, but again, why pick that random feature, you know, apart from anything? He seems to suggest yeah, it came from Australia, even though I think the research doesn't necessarily suggest that was the case. Yeah, he's not hot Um, on anything
1: linguistically. No, I mean,
2: not really, not not really with it in linguistic (laughs) terms. But again, he's kind of, he's, he's implying not only a deficit model, but things that we've talked about quite a lot, which is this idea that. Alex Scott presenting without G's on the end of her words in the BBC coverage will somehow infect younger people and that they'll Mm. pick it up and run with it. And the English language will be the worse off for it, which is a a narrative that we see a lot, of course, in the news as well.
1: Yeah, and it's that kind of apocalyptic language he uses as well, not just about his own reaction, but about this sort of decline, isn't it? And this this was mirrored in lots of the other online comments that were sort of picked up by other people who weren't language experts and i mean people are allowed opinions about language we all use language and so you know we're not not trying to sort of cancel opinions about language but on, on one level it does it does require a little bit of insight and a bit of an open mind to actually explore some of these things and there were some interesting discussions online about this there were some really interesting articles written i think as we said you know linguists wrote some really good stuff about this and tried to explain with a sort of public facing you know, view that they were trying to look, say, here's, here's, here's what's going on from a linguistic perspective. So I think there were some constructive conversations that were had, particularly Claire Hardacre at Lancaster did a really good thread. Katie mm-hmm. Edwards, another linguist, did a really good article about it. Other people are sort of, people like Rob Drummond, for example, have, have talked about it on Twitter. And it was it was really good to see that. But at the same time, there were lots of very unconstructive discussions that went on too, where people simply refused to acknowledge That that sound was anything to do with accent. I mean, I Mm. I I spent a ridiculous (laughs) Saturday morning arguing (laughs) with somebody who was absolutely adamant that the ing sound had nothing to do with accent and upbringing and region, and it Mm. was just a feature of laziness. And it was very Mm -hmm. difficult to convince this guy, and I'm not sure I did that. It was you know it's a it's a well researched linguistic variable. You know, going back to the early 70s with Trudgill, looking at it in Norwich and linking it yeah. to region, to class, mm-hmm. to gender and performance of identity and things like that. It's it's clearly, you know, it is an accent feature. And I, th- I don't think many linguists would disagree with it. But mm-hmm. I think there was also, you know, there, there was some really unpleasant sort of vitriolic points that really timed with what Lisa was saying about it, about its sort of deficit narrative Mm. That sort of idea that it's, it's an inability, it's a, a speech impediment, some people were describing it as. There were some awful things that the Accentism Project account on Twitter gathered together, comments that were on the Times website, including people who offered things like, you know, it's nothing to do with their accent, it's all to do with their complete inability to pronounce any English word ending in ING. It was all, again, linked to culture wars and a woke agenda,
2: so this is where this is where it appears to kind of cross over with these other proxies that this mm, isn't really mm. a comment about that feature of her talk that this a- appears. and certainly yeah. from some points of view to to be about other things and that the that the language comments are a gateway into wider ideas about social, aspects of social identity yeah um, and alex cool. Scott herself like her tweet response to lord digby jones is is a really lovely kind of little masterclass in using tweeting and, mm. and how to set out tweets as well it's quite lyrical and she's got some really lovely sort of emoji use in there which mm-hmm. are quite sort of laden with sort of identity markers as well yeah so she says i'm from a working class family in east london poplar tower hamlet and i am proud and she capitalizes the proud and then uses that kind of black hands clapping sort of preach yeah. emoji that's sort of laden with all sorts of different kind of implicatures. But then she goes on to say, um, proud of the young girl who overcame obstacles and proud of my accent, exclamation mark. It's me, comma. It's my journey, comma. My grit. Uh, and mm. she's got that kind of really lovely lyrical sort of three-part uh, sentence that she ends with there at the end. But she draws attention to the idea that the that her accent features is linked to her class in a way that's quite interesting. At least she sees it as a marker of her working class background. Uh, it's interesting that she chooses to kind of counteract that deficit model with, yeah. And,
0: <laughs> you yes. know, a sort of yeah. a,
2: a, a pride that, that, is, that is frequently missing from the other side of the debate mm. uh, or the idea that you could be proud to speak in that way yeah. uh, when and there are so many people think that, you, that you're
0: lazy for speaking in that way. Mm. And yeah. it, it's a clear challenge, isn't it, to, to the idea that there is only one proper way to to speak and i think that's an idea that's been so kind of firmly entrenched in society that it, yeah. is, it is difficult like people find it difficult to to not think of of accent as either you know correct or incorrect but mm. just simply different mm. um, yeah
1: and, uh, no that's it's, i think that's a really interesting point isn't it and even, even when people do get that and understand that it's perfectly okay because of people's you know different backgrounds to pronounce certain words in different ways they still get really hung up on certain things like the ing ending mm. so i mean there's there's one particular twitter account sporting nest who, who said you're confusing accents with saying words correctly someone can say grass grass duck, duck, um, they've written it, so I'm just pronouncing it in a ways that mm. it might be differently said, for example, in multiple ways, depending on where they come from, but no accent would include gra or duh. And the same applies to gerunds. It's a learnt laziness, not an accent. Now, they're kind of partly right because you can say grass, grass, duck, duck in different ways. But of course, what they then don't see is that you can pronounce ing in different ways as well. Mm. And, and again, that is nothing to do with laziness. Um It is an accent feature, and I still think there is, you know, there are certain features. Of language, which are really kind of stigmatized, and that's one yeah. of them.
2: It was one of the things that I liked most about Dr. Clay Hardick's blog post, and we'll and we'll link it for people to have a look at. Is that she fairly succinctly actually managed to tie in lots of really complex ideas about yeah. uh, difference between uh, speech and mm. writing as modes, and those mm. Re- mm. reflections mm. and representations in the media and in accent and in writing, and why that's a complicated process, but also power and how they were essentially being replicated by Lord Digby Jones. Yeah. what you've got is a is a very powerful and and privileged white male kind of punching down a working class black woman who has worked her way up in to being in the public eye and that there are lots of there are lots of things happening there as well above and beyond just his comments about her language.
1: Yeah, very much so. And then there were some other interesting threads as well. I mean, we mentioned the Katie Edwards one, but also Ethan Tovey Walsh did a very good one, which we'll link to in the show notes and Deborah Cameron has re- written about this more recently, particularly with the mm-hmm. kind of gender angle, because yeah. I don't think it's a great surprise to see it's a privileged white male attacking three women. And, you know, so you get Alex Scott herself, we've been talking about, you get Beth Rigby, and you also get Pretty Patel, and we have talked about her before, mm-hmm. and I think it's interesting that she's also been picked up on her accent. I, th- I think Rob Drummond talked about this at a conference recently where he's, saying he- he's kind of talked about this idea that, you know, you've got to be consistent as a linguist. You may not like someone's political background but you still you know you you have to come out to bat for the the wrongness of having a go at somebody over an arbitrary linguistic feature Mm. so it's, it's interesting that you know women have been singled out as well and i think deborah cameron writes about that really well in her blog post
2: and kind of moving on to the second story that we had, we had some really nice representations of accents on the front pages when the story was being covered. Apparently, you know, northern accents dying out uh, at some point in the future. And this was referenced in Sandra's uh, little mini interview that we did um, earlier in the episode as well. Uh, so you've got the, the front page of the Daily Star, which is chuffing neck. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Chuffy neck.
2: How did I do there, Jackie?
0: How was my how not was bad? My... But I mean, like, that's that's a phrase that I, I've never never used in in my life. Chuffing neck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, flipping neck, maybe. But yeah.
2: <laughs> and in case we were unclear, I had uh, pictures of um, characters from Last of the
0: Summer Wine on there. Yeah, of ones? course. Yeah, yeah.
1: Cultural <laughs> reference point for the millennials there. <laughs> yeah
0: we still are wearing our flat caps
1: <laughs> this this was coverage of a story that came from uh, a, a piece of research that was done and it was published in a physics journal but did involve a linguist so it was uh Tamsin Blackster who's a linguist at Cambridge and what was kind of interesting about this was it was very similar in some ways to the the story that Sandra was talking about earlier on about the sounds of 2066 it was it was essentially a kind of a way of looking into the future of the English language and thinking about what might happen within 50 years around sort of accents and dialects. But unlike the HSBC Sounds of 2066 one, there was, they, they used in this bit of research some very very complicated mathematical modeling and I, I looked at it i looked at the actual report and i got five pages into it thinking Can i get this this is all right and then there's a load of equations and i just thought <laughs> oh, no i'm sorry um and it was very very detailed and i kind of thought well yeah maybe there's some interesting kind of mathematical you know knowledge behind that but there are so many other variables um how do you kind of account for you know things like n- new varieties forming how do you account for things like MLE and M-U-B-E and M-B-E and all mm. of those kind of things that we mm. talked about around sort of multicultural varieties and ethnolects?
2: And did, um, was the report as kind of emphatic as the headline there suggests? Because the, the Daily Star strapline mm-hmm. says, Northern accents will vanish soon, was the sort of paraphrase that they used yeah, on the front page. Yeah, fairly sensational.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think yeah, it was. I suspect yeah. it
2: wasn't that emphatic.
1: I mean they, they were certainly suggesting that there were patterns in accents that may well be more likely to uh die out or maybe not die out even but to become less obvious and that's not a million miles away from the stuff from manchester university's um research last year that we looked at around a kind of new northern middle class accent that seemed to be emerging but at the same time there's been other research done by people like Kevin Watson for example mm. in Liverpool showing that young scouts are getting more scouts
0: yeah and even, and even especially report, female yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah 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 but I think mm. it was even that even that study about the, the you know the, the northern middle class accent wasn't suggesting that all northern accents. Mm. dying out and becoming the same. We're suggesting that, you know, you could still tell a difference between a Newcastle one and a Leeds one or a Sheffield one and a Liverpool one. Yeah, of course, yeah. Mm.
2: Um, It sounds like the the modelling was kind of giving you broad brushstrokes for sort of large phonological variants, but that wouldn't account for the kind of conversations that we've had with lots of sociolinguists, which talk about individual participants kind of performing identities between, you know, specific social groups and specific social context mm. would that be
1: fair to say yeah i know definitely and i think i think there's a real there's a real sense that this was very big picture and while they were looking at what has happened to accents in the past and they were trying to sort of apply that to the future which is you know the sound way of doing it i think and they, they talk about exactly how they did that by using the survey of english dialects and the the app that cambridge and burn university came up with about four or five years ago where people used used an app on the phone to actually you know chart their own use of accent and dialect you know it, it was they, they they showed their sort of workings but it was you know as you say it doesn't account for those sort of individual performances of identity it doesn't account for you know things like the, the ways in which people feel about the accents they're using I would
0: suggest suggest that we are we kind of use our we use the same accent all of the time mm. when yeah. in reality we definitely don't do we yeah um
1: no chuffing way
0: no chuffing <laughs> way. <laughs>